This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, offering members-only discounts that can save you thousands of dollars a year. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Christine Ross for Libby Snymer. What are the rights of victims versus convicted killers? A story in the news this week has many asking this very question. And a look back at D-Day and why the World War II invasion remains important on its 79th anniversary. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. An American telemedicine platform has made a huge error, scaring hundreds of users. Grail, a company that uses blood samples to try and detect signs of cancer, blames a software glitch from a vendor that led it to send letters to some 400 patients that they may have cancer when in fact they did not. The glitch affects the customers who ordered the company's Galeri test, which uses a blood draw to detect a cancer signal shared by 50 types of cancer and is available only by prescription. Patients are being notified by phone, email, or letter about the error. Canada has among the highest rates of inflammatory bowel disease in the world, and no one knows exactly why. The director of the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario's IBD Centre is calling on governments to provide more support for the physical and mental health needs that come with the chronic illness. He compares IBD to insulin-dependent diabetes, saying that Crohn's and colitis are also incurable and lifelong conditions, and there are medical treatments used to get both under control. As Canadians deal with their insurance companies after a record number of spring wildfires, comes word that Allstate is no longer offering new policies in California. Like State Farm, which announced a similar move a week earlier, Allstate cited worsening climate conditions that had made doing business there difficult. Allstate, the state's fourth largest property and casualty insurance provider, has stopped selling new home, condo or commercial insurance policies in that state. Toronto is not the only big city dealing with transit fare evaders. New York's transit agency lost almost $700 million to fare evasion last year, despite increased police presence. Now it's looking at different ways to rein in the losses. A report is proposing funneling more resources onto buses, boosting a program that subsidizes the cost of public transit for low-income New Yorkers, posting more ads urging riders to pay up, and adding new fare gates that are harder to climb. Lifestyle guru Martha Stewart says she's on a rampage to end remote work. The 81-year-old made a career out of getting Americans to spend more effort making their homes perfect. Now she wants them to get back to the office. The so-called queen of domestic arts says people can't possibly get everything done working three days a week in the office and two days remotely. Lawn bowling is trying to skew younger. There's a movement to broaden the appeal of the summer pastime that dates back centuries to change the image of the elderly dressed in white, gently rolling balls along the grass. 
Bowls Canada is introducing new up-tempo formats and party-like events where some players bowl barefoot or while holding a can of beer. And England Sports Governing Body has also launched a five-year plan to introduce a million people to lawn bowling every year by 2026. The sport has fallen on tough times despite its rich history and long association with the Commonwealth Games. I'm Christine Ross and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. When we sentence someone to life sentences, that means a life sentence. In the jail, maximum security, 23 hours a day. Matter of fact, I'd go one step further. That one hour he's out, he should be in general population. Ontario Premier Doug Ford is calling for the removal of the Commissioner of Corrections Canada after its quiet and unexplained decision to transfer notorious serial killer Paul Bernardo from maximum to medium security lockup. And the federal government has expressed shock over the move that was done in secrecy. Outrage is growing over the transfer, leaving many asking about victims' rights versus the rights of convicted criminals. We reached Memorial University Associate Professor Dr. Scott Kenny, who specializes in criminology and victims' rights. The rights for victims in this country are weak and largely symbolic. Essentially, our system is has largely focused on offenders throughout its history, and our le- and our legal system in Canada goes back to that of England, and it, it and it's basically focused on uh, having a prosecution between the state and the accused. The victim is not a party to the proceeding, and the entire legal structure, the criminal justice structure, is built around that. So, victims have not been part of the 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 major focus of the justice system really for a very long time. And victims' rights has only been a movement in Canada for about the last forty years, maybe a little bit more. Um, so we're playing catch-up. If you want to talk about actual rights, uh, or so-called rights, I like to call them, uh, every province has a Provincial Victims Bill of Rights. And the, the, the rights enumerated are often very vague. They say things like the victim has the right to be treated with courteous, courtesy and compassion. Well, that, that's so vague you could drive a bus through it. And usually the most specific language in the legislation uh, says the victim has no right of action if they feel their rights have been violated. So if it is an unenforceable right or right, that, that's a question that I have. The governing legislation in Canada is what's called the Canadian Victims' Bill of Rights. It was passed in 2015. And basically, it enumerates four classes of rights. Rights to information, protection, uh, participation, and restitution. Um, and if you look at the language, I, I can't really... In the amount of time I have here, I can't really get into the detail, but a lot of these are qualified in some way or another. It's taken pretty much four decades for us to move the needle in terms of of victims' rights. Do you think this particular case, now that it has kind of prompted this outrage, will uh, give more um, credence to or or, um, more focus on victims' rights? It's only moved it really in a symbolic, largely symbolic direction. Uh, because you know these rights are not really that enforceable in many cases, and they're they're subject to they basically go through an internal complaint mechanism. As I said, uh, there's vagueness, there's qualifications to the rights, um, and so it, it's um, I don't think it's moved the needle all that much. We have Canada's public safety minister who said he was outraged and shocked. We have the Premier of Ontario now calling for the head of Corrections Canada to be removed. And the handling of all of this has led to major debate about transparency, about major public institutions and what we, the taxpayers, pay for. But there's almost this attitude of that, you know, we know best. 
And we'll- oh yeah, that's well. Well, that that's government in general, and in a lot of institutions, they protect themselves. And bureaucratic organizations protect themselves, you know, and they hide behind privacy law. And yes, there are laws. I understand that. Um, but let's just say that um, in in many cases, um, there's a great deal of. Um, Keeping information quiet, and the you know the uh, the Privacy Act and everything overrides the Canadian Victims Bill of Rights, and there's all kinds of reasons why they could deny you information. There was a murder in my own family uh, 40 years ago, and um, the anniversary is coming up in two weeks. And um, we, my family, basically uh, fought for years through fought going to parole hearings and that sort of thing. And the amount of information we were able to get, yes, they did provide some information, but there was a lot of stuff that we were not able to access. And I can tell you that um, uh, what I went to one hearing, and the only reason I was able to get a lot of good detailed information to use the next hearing I, I attended was because someone from the Canadian Resource Center for Victims, Victims of Crime, of which I'm a member of the board of directors, by the way, uh, they um, they had someone come there to the hearing and take really good notes that I could draw upon. I never would have had, had access to this information at all if it hadn't been for someone that took good notes for me. Um, it's uh, It's very, very secretive. The average person hopefully won't have to go through and navigate this victim system, but it sounds to me like it's it's very difficult. You can't access a lot of information, unlike yourself, who are, you know, kind of on the inside and know how to navigate that. Don't get me wrong. There is some information available. Uh, but when you come down to some of the nuts and bolts of, of uh, especially correctional matters and and, uh, and uh, matters to do with parole, um, yes, you can get this. You can get information about when the hearing is going to be held. You can get information sometimes about decisions. Um, you also have... Uh, uh, you can attend parole hearings, but the, the, the deck is stacked against you in a lot of ways when you attend these hearings. That was Memorial University Associate Professor Dr. Scott Kenny. I'm Christine Ross, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, we mark the 79th anniversary of D-Day. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP. Canada's largest and most influential association fighting for the interests of Canadians as we age. Find out more at carp.ca. This week marked the 79th anniversary of D-Day that still resonates today. Historians often refer to it as the beginning of the end of World War II. June 6, 1944, marked the invasion of the beaches at Normandy in northern France by troops from Canada, the U.S., the U.K., and other countries during World War II. The operation became known as the largest amphibious invasion in military history. Juneau Beach is most famous for being one of the five landing spots for the D-Day invasion. We reached Alex Fitzgerald Black. Executive Director with the Juneau Beach Centre Association based in Canada that runs a war museum in France. How did the Juneau Centre Association mark this special anniversary this week? Every year, you know, every anniversary since 2003 when the Juneau Beach Centre first opened, uh, we hold a kind of a joint French and Canadian ceremony outside the museum. And it was quite incredible. I mean, obviously, the last couple of years with the pandemic, you know, have made things you know, difficult for the museum and, and, and fewer people have come out to these ceremonies, uh, just like fewer people have maybe gone to Remembrance Day in recent years here in Canada. But this year we had over 500 uh, visitors attend the ceremony, um, you know, with dignitaries from, you know, Veterans Affairs Canada, the French government, local local mayors, 
uh, in Normandy. So really, really great event. It's actually available on our Facebook page. If anybody wants to go to the Juno Beach Center's Facebook page uh, and go to June 6th, they can find the, the live stream there. So when people move through the museum in France, which, you know, almost 80 years now since D-Day, what are some of the things they're saying and how are they reacting? Well, you know, our our visitors, uh, you know, they're they're kind of two major groupings, I suppose. We have, you know, a lot of European visitors who are, you know, just learning about Canada and Canada's role, you know, in the Second World War for the first time. And so the museum has a circuit that actually starts, you know, with you on a landing craft, listening to the thoughts of the Canadian soldier about to land on Juneau Beach. And then the doors open up, and you're actually in Canada in the 1930s. And so the museum takes you through that, introduces you to Canada in the 1930s, and then you go through Canada in the war years, the roads to victory, and then there's some reflective elements at the end in terms of remembrance, and actually a a room about... um, uh, it's uh, Canada Today, and actually we're doing a major project for next year to update that room to bring it kind of 20, 20 years into the future since it was originally uh, crafted back in the early 2000s. How are Canada's contributions being remembered in Europe to this day? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think the Netherlands is a really good example to start with. You know, every, and just, just a month ago, they were celebrating their Liberation Day. And, you know, every spring, you know, they welcome Canadians and Canadian veterans back. Um, to thank them for 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 their freedom, and and the French are very are are very much the same, you know. And the, the anniversary that you know concerns them, of course, is is D Day, and uh, you know our museum is is a testament to the partnership between Canadians and French who have come together to remember, uh, you know, the the, the soldiers, sailors, uh, air crew, um, who made those sacrifices to ensure that you know Nazi Germany wouldn't reign you know, over Europe for, you know, more than four years, and that, you know, those countries would also be free uh, to, 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 to move forward in a democratic manner. So, you know, it's incredible, um, especially with this anniversary being a significant anniversary for the center. I know the town of Croissant-sur-Mer, which is the, the town in which the center is located, you know, there were Canadian flags everywhere, um, you know, lots of locals, you know, uh, encouraged and, 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 and very happy to welcome, you know, many Canadian visitors back and to thank our country for the freedoms that we uh, to, to return to them. You know, from the First World War, we use the words, lest we forget. What can we do now to make sure that D-Day doesn't become a, just a faded memory? Well, I, I think there's a number of things we can do. I think perhaps one of the most important things is to tell those personal stories. And, you know, so many Canadians have connections to the Second World War. Um, you know, again, you know, uh, 1.1 million Canadians served at the time. And so, you know, doing a little bit of research, uncovering that family history, uh, understanding that, you know, relative or loved one's story, and sharing that, I think, is perhaps the best way to get started so many parallels are drawn now to current the current conflict in Ukraine, right. and, and I mean, what kind of lessons can be taken from D-Day and applied to to what's going on in Europe now? The Canadians who were present on D-Day were all volunteers, and they stepped up um, because they had a cause uh, that was kind of bigger than themselves. And um, Ukraine is under similar pressures right now, where um, they have you know a country and a, a dictator in Vladimir Putin's Russia. You know that's uh, doesn't want to acknowledge the right of the Ukrainian, you know, nation to exist. And so there are some parallels there. You alluded to your special anniversary, so not only is it 79 years since D-Day, but it's 20 years for your organization. Tell, tell us about that. 
Yeah, so the museum was founded by, you know, Second World War veterans who, you know, were in their retirement years in the 90s, and they had gone back to, to Normandy and to the Netherlands, and uh, they, they when they visited Normandy, there were plenty of uh, small memorials that Canadian units and, and groups had, had left, but there was nothing to tell the story of what Canada did during the Second World War. And so a group of these veterans got together you know, you know, founded the association and then raised, you know, over $10 million to build this center with monies coming from the Canadian government, the French government and, and multiple provincial governments in Canada. And of course, you know, the average, you know, Canadian donor as well uh, to help support this effort. And so now it's been, you know, 20 years, very sadly, uh, none of our founding veterans uh, are still with us anymore, but we continue to carry the torch forward for them. Ultimately, that's what it was about. It was about ensuring that, you know, uh, this history was not forgotten uh, by future generations. And that's the, that's the core of our educational mission. Alex Fitzgerald Black, thank you so much for this. Well, thank you very much, Christine. Thank you. That was Alex Fitzgerald Black, Executive Director with the Juno Beach Centre Association. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Christine Ross for Libby Zneimer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Zneimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.